right, everybody, welcome into another episode of the Sports Ethos Celtics podcast. I am here with you guys today with a very, very special guest and also my co-host, as usual, Lucas Gaynor. I'm your host, Patrick Lounsbury, and we have from Celtics blog writer Adam Taylor in the house today to go break down some of the NBA finals that we've seen in game one and kind of give us an insight of what we're going to be seeing throughout this series and get some nice opinions out there. Adam, how are you doing, man? Welcome to the show again. I'm doing well, man. I always appreciate being asked on to any podcast. Uh, I find it like a, a a huge like compliment. So thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And Lucas, how are we feeling today, man? I know you were out there playing some some ball before we got this podcast kicked off. How are you feeling today? Oh, I feel terrific, man. You know, I had to get my shots up, my jumper out there looking like 2018 Jeff Teague. Um, you know, but it's a pleasure to have Adam back on. You are now a rarefied air, multi-time guest. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, seriously, Adam, we do appreciate you uh, coming on to the show, man. Adam really knows his X and O's. Go check him out on YouTube. Go read his stuff, man. For Celtics blog, he does absolutely great work. And you're missing out if you're not checking out his work, man. Absolutely. And uh, just to kind of bring it in full circle so people can understand that the last time we had Adam on was uh, before the season started. We had a lot of uh, different type of takes in regards of how we thought this season goes. And I think it's fair to say that we're, we're all happily surprised and also very wrong. Um, I, I think we all had the ceiling about the second round for this team possibly getting to and, and being knocked out. But here we are. Uh, the Celtics are up 1-0 in the NBA Finals against the Warriors. Uh, Adam, how, how does it feel to kind of come full circle and reflect now uh, from that, that show we had prior? Man, I'm so happy we were all wrong, dude. Like, you know, coming into the season, and we all agreed that this team was – you know, the ideal kind of scenario was a second-round exit. There was a rookie head coach. You were waiting for Tatum to take a leap, blah, 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 blah. Rough start to the season. Kind of turned around, like, you know, January really picked up pace after February. I think even as, like, late as early April, I was still like, yo, this is a second-round exit, and I'm cool with that. And now they're in the NBA Finals, and I'm just like, dude, what the hell happened, man? This team just found a whole new gear. They really became connected on both sides of the floor. Uh, Udoka got really, really good with his rotations, trusting his guys. And uh, for me, that was one of the biggest things, right? Like, if you look back to the start of the season, one of the things that was a big issue for me, I don't know about you, was Udoka's rotations. He was very rigid, didn't really counter what other teams were doing, stuck to his guns, and it kind of cost him a few games. Now, like, Udoka's putting Peyton Pritchard out there for, like, eight minutes in the fourth quarter of a finals game. Uh, the dude, like, he, his development as a head coach has been, like, probably the biggest storyline of the season, and we're talking about an all-NBA year from Jason Tatum, um, a role, like, you know, Al Horford, not even rolling back the clock, just transcending the, the scope of time. Like, there's just been a whole load of stuff that's gone on over the last few months that's made it a really exciting time to be a Celtics fan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Lucas and I have talked about Ime Doku uh, a lot, especially uh, on our last show, man. Uh, we can't give that man enough praise. And uh, one of the things I think we saw that was so great with Ime's just his composure throughout this process. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times where you can get 
overwhelmed as a first year coach and you're hearing the noise outside and it's easy to crumble under a lot of that type of pressure. You have a team that has these two star players that are, are kind of in their twenties and that you're trying to build towards something. Um, we all thought maybe this is going to be a bridge year. Um, but ultimately he may stayed true to what he wanted to implement. He kept holding people accountable. People didn't know if that was going to work with this type of roster and the team has slowly responded. And uh, uh, Lucas, uh, what, what do you think uh, was the biggest jump in Ime's success throughout this year? I mean, I'm with Adam here. Like, one of the big things is definitely the rotation. You know, Pat, a big, uh, big topic of conversation we had specifically was about Pritchard. You know, that Portland game is really the first game he was getting consistent run, kind of that confidence booster, and you know. Ime's willing to adjust to the situation now as opposed to, like Adam said, be so rigid in his rotation. But as far as the biggest thing, the biggest thing that he uh, that he did it was, I would say, getting rid of a lot of the bad habits that the Celtics team had kind of accrued over the past season and a half, two seasons. Um, you know, complete effort on every defensive possession, or at least for the most part, um, you know, moving the ball well. You know, in that introductory press conference. He said, you know, sorry, Brad, but they were 27th in assists. We're going to average more assists. And I would say just, you know, playing more cohesive team basketball, you know, getting the team to buy into a system is probably the biggest thing. I know that's not like a specific thing really, but I would say that's probably the biggest thing for me is that he got this team to absolutely buy in, you know, to his system. And I think that's all credit to Ime. Like you said, Pat, you know, we talk a lot about how Ime is so great. I could go for hours on this guy. Yeah, and we talked about Ime and then mentioned also Brad Stevens. Uh, what do we what do we think in general of? I, I know me and Luke's touched on it last episode, but Adam, we'd love to hear your insights of the first year of Brad Stevens as the basketball operations in control of the Boston Celtics. Man, what? How have you kind of reflected on his tenure so far, and what have you been most impressed with? I think it's just man, like okay. So his tenure so far is just a massive dub, right? Like he's win he's every trade he's made so far has looked genius. Even being brave enough to bring guys back, you know, bring Horford back, bring Tice back. I think Tice is probably the most shaky move he made, just because Tice just hasn't looked playable for large sections of the sections of the postseason. Um but I think he's been super decisive with what he wants to do. He came in he moved into the front office with a clear vision. Wanted a coach that had a similar vision, like hired Udoka, and then they've just doubled down on being a defensive-minded team, which they were under Brad. You know, for most of Brad's tenure, before things started to get shaky towards the end, they were always a top-10 defensive team. Made sure that everyone they brought in was a two-way guy. They were There's no weak links on defense in their top eight, top nine guys. That includes Pritchard. Like You can target Pritchard, but he's not going to just lay back and kind of let you beat him. He's not Kemba Walker. He's going to fight and claw. So I think just coming in with a vision and then executing on that callously, like he didn't care who got moved. He was bringing guys in just to flip them further down the line. You know, I mean, some of the moves were a bit weird. Like, you know, the Bol Bol and PJ Dozier move was a little bit weird. But it was a means to an end. So I'm cool with it. The only thing I'd like to see now is for them to start prioritizing a little bit more offense. Because even though... The Celtics are in the finals. We have seen at times where Tatum and Brown are kind of, you know, if they're having bad nights, there's just not enough offensive firepower to come off the bench and 
spur them on to a win. So I think that there's still work to be done, even if they are in the even if they are in the finals. This team isn't the finished product. But as a first year GM, like Brad gets an A plus in my books. Oh, I'm yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, I think you probably should have been higher in the executive of the year voting, even Adam. Um, but no, I mean, I'm echoing everything you said, man. He knew what he wanted to do. You know, it was win now. He was willing to move on from some first-round picks that, you know, people weren't too uh, – at least I saw some people on Twitter, they were worried about giving up the 2028 pick swap, and I totally understand why. Uh, but listen, after Derek White's game one, I don't think too many com- people are complaining about the 2028 pick swap. But, uh, Adam, do you just want to speak to Derek White? You know, and also I just want to say something Adam just mentioned there was uh, this is not the finished product and we're in the finals. That's got to be exciting to hear as a Celtics fan. Listen, it even excites me as someone who covers the Celtics, but as a fan, you know, you got to feel good hearing that. But, Adam, can you just speak kind of what you thought of the Derek White trade, maybe when it went down, and then, you know, how you're feeling after that, you know, ridiculous game one? Yeah, man, I mean, I, I mean, it's not really a plug at this point, but I've done a huge deep dive on Derek White when they signed him. Like, I don't – especially this year, like this year being my first year where I've kind of been freelancing full-time, so – a lot of the time that I'd usually be watching other teams' games are now taken up by producing articles or whatever for whoever I'm writing for at the time. Uh, so I hadn't seen much Derek White really at all. So I went back, I watched every possession on both ends of the floor for the last two years from Derek White. I spent like two, three days just literally grinding through possession after possession on both sides. I came away feeling like the Celtics had got somebody that was a perfect fit as a six-man. And we didn't see that straight away, but I think that the problem is we live in a world of instant gratification, man. You know, everybody, you you put a post out on social media, you're instantly getting likes, retweets, if it's a good post, obviously, Uh, shares if it's Instagram, and you get that instant dopamine hit. Same as like the way we consume video content and stuff. It's all instant hit. So when somebody takes a few minutes to like settle in and really find their footing, that doesn't sit well with fan bases. Not anymore. There's no patience in sports anymore. So I understood that, hey, they're quite struggling bad. He's not really finding his footing, scoring. He's making some mistakes defensively. A lot of people are looking at that 2028 pick like it was an overpay. And I'm just like, dude, like, it's 2028. If you read, like, no matter what, my mentality with that was if you need that draft pick in 2028, that means something went wrong with Tatum and all Brown, and you're not letting them walk for free. It's going to be a sign and trade deal if that ever was to happen. So you, you can acquire draft picks that are at that similar level anywhere. So let's not worry about 2028. We're in 2022. Um, and then through game one, like, I think, I think he really found his momentum midway through that Miami series. And then what we saw was a continuation of that in game one. Now, look, Golden State are nowhere near as physical as Milwaukee or Miami. Well, Miami were more aggressive than physical, but Golden State don't have the level of enforcers that either of those two teams did. The spacing is just far better. I think that the Celtics are flowing into their offense a lot more because they're not being beat up on every possession. You're not fighting and clawing for space. And that fits Derek White perfectly because he he does take that extra second to kind of line his shot up. And this series just projects to be a really good matchup for Derek White. Penetration, um, driving kick, and then spot up freeze. So I wasn't surprised, but I was pleasant. Like I was very happy with seeing him succeed because 
I know there's been a lot of hate thrown at him in the media, especially from the fan base. Yeah, no, I mean, once again, Adam, you know, you're, t- you're speaking my language. Even yesterday on the pod, Pat and I, I kind of touched on, you know, the fickle nature of sports fans. Like Derek White, you know, adjusting to a new team, a new system, a new role. You know, he was struggling. And like you said, man, a lot of people were just, you know, oh, Jay Rich is better. Oh, the 2028 first round pick, this and that. You just got to, like you said, have some patience, man. I thought that was a great point about the instant gratification. You know, people want things to work out like right away. And, uh, you know, I think it was unfair to Derek to like expect him to come in, you know, and hit, absolutely hit the ground running. But he has found his stride here, you know, like you said, in, in the middle of that Miami series uh, until now. And then another big point we talk about, Adam, I don't know about you, but I am overjoyed to see a team that is less physical and less aggressive than Miami and uh, Miami and, and Milwaukee, man. It feels like a completely different ballgame. But, Pat. Yeah, that Miami series was mind-blowingly boring. I'm not even going to lie. No, it was like, brutal. It yeah, was brutal. It, it was a, like the Milwaukee series, it was physical, but it was a battle. So every possession was fun. That Miami series, it was like Miami don't really have the offense to be exciting. Their defense isn't at an elite level. There's so many guys that are banged up. Like I was, look, honestly, dude, I, I was struggled to get through the games, and then I was rewatching everything. So it just felt like the the that like little period in time felt like it took like ten years to get through. Oh, it was really God. tough. I 100 percent agree. I'm like, because I like to rewatch the games too, right? Just to get a little bit of a better feel because. You know, it just helps me digest things a little better, you know, watching it through a second time. But, oh, my God, those rewatches from Miami, I was straight struggling through. But, uh, Pat? It didn't help, I don't think, in that Miami series where we saw um, some blowouts as well. Like, sometimes there's a blowout in the other one. It, it just kind of came out like, who has the most energy today? Like, it, it, And that's just not fun basketball sometimes. And then um, on top of, like, the Derek White thing, right? Um, it, it really, for me, when watching him now uh, be in his kind of like a peak, I'm really, really impressed with the fact that, like, his ability to be a trail defender is so underrated. He might be one of the best trail defenders I've ever seen. His ability to still apply pressure after coming over a screen on the top and recover and get blocks from behind guys with his length has impressed me so much with Derek White. Like he, there's never a moment where you feel like, oh, uh, you know, Derek White's guarding me. I get a screen over here. Like you have to start thinking, like, man, this guy's still around somewhere. Like, and his presence is always felt. And then we also talked about like he's kind of in this Fred Van Vliet effect. We calling him Daddy White right now. So um, ever since he had his kid, man, it's he's kind of like let off an extra pressure. Listen, I begrudgingly have called him that maybe once or twice. Okay, hey, you you bought in. You bought in at this point, you know, Adam. uh, (laughs) That's that's kind of the nickname that I've given him though. Um, White has been so phenomenal though. Uh, I think he's been the biggest X factor in this series, and I think he has to be the biggest X factor. For me, it's going to be Derek White has to be better in this series than Jordan Poole. And if he is better than Jordan Poole throughout the series, then the Celtics are going to have a really good chance of taking away that hardware. And in my opinion, you know, there's no reason for me to believe that Derek White isn't capable of sustaining that because as we said this team the Warriors are just not as physical they're not going to take up that space like Miami or the Bucks kind of did so this Celtics offense can now start getting to the flow and people forgot that you know closing out the year 
this offense was a very good offense. It started clicking. It started flowing. Playoffs, you know, when you play a little bit more physical and you take away some space, it, it kind of gets stagnant for the Celtics. But the Warriors, who like to play such smaller guards throughout a game, it's going to make it so much more difficult for them to take over that space and not get hurt for it. So it, it, for me, the I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, like, where you're at, Adam, adjustment-wise, the Warriors are going to need to do to – affect the spacing for the Celtics on the offensive side of the ball? What the Warriors need to do to reduce the spacing for Boston? Yeah, I just want to know what you think that so adjustment is going to look like. Yeah, so a lot of what was hurting the Warriors was the fact that they were set, they were overhelping a little bit. They were overloading the strong side whenever Tatum or Bram were on the ball. So there was always somebody like semi-open that could cut and create some rotations. I think that what they're going to need to do is they don't, outside of Looney, they don't really have anyone that projects to be a, a force in the draft. So they're going to be hedging a lot and they're going to have to switch a bunch. I don't think that this series, I don't think they have the matchups uh, to, to really reduce that spacing. What, what Golden State likes to do a lot of the time is kind of just like muddy the waters for the role players and let the stars go off. Right, so it's very much like let Tatum eat and make sure nobody else does, or let Tatum and Brown eat, but those two together can't beat you. So the way that they're gonna reduce that spacing is to play the passing lanes, in my opinion. Uh, they they were one of the better teams for deflections all through the season, uh, especially in transition in the open floor. They're really good at picking off passes and then getting out and running. The best way that Golden State can really deal with that spacing, man. I mean, it's tough, right? You've got Al Horford playing a five out, which is dragging Kevon Looney away from the rim. I just don't think they've got the personnel to limit the spacing, and I think it's going to be one of these games where it's just a shootout, man. Like, you need some big bodies if you want to limit spacing. You need to be able to start forcing guys off the perimeter because they're not going to get their shot up over you. You know, Giannis, um, Lopez, and... Portis were perfect for that because you know that if these guys are being pulled onto the perimeter and they're switching, there's going to be a lot of block jumpers. So you drive more, you try and pull them away from the rim and you get some easy buckets, get guys in rotation, and then you start relying on guys relocating, sinking and filling. When you're going up against a team like Golden State, really, their idea is to force you to shoot threes because they're going to guard you on the perimeter and try and pressure you into getting the ball off. If you can beat that frontline defense, then there's not much they can do. They don't have the size to protect the rim, which is why they pressure the perimeter so heavily. Yeah, and, and before you go, Lucas here, uh, something I noticed in that after rewatching game one was it was interesting to see the Warriors do a box one on Tatum, and then they switched uh, from the box one to a box one on JB in the fourth quarter when he started getting hot. Um, I just don't know how much success that that's going to have when the Celtics, like Ime, made that adjustment and went really small down the stretch, uh, allowing the to make them pay for that, right? So Because he's going to beat that guy probably on one, and then they're going to have to collapse, and that's going to leave somebody open, and you just got to find that open person. So I, I'm just really curious on on how the Warriors can adjust. What do you see type of adjustments, Lucas, uh, for the Warriors? I mean, honestly, nothing like super complex or – anything crazy but i just don't think draymond closed out uh, on al horford like he kind of treated him like a non-shooter you know on a lot of those threes he hit al was just wide open and draymond was just not closing out so 
I wonder if we see Draymond close out harder. You know, I mentioned this last spot. I think Al can put the ball on the deck and make something happen that way. So I don't think that's like a complete L for the Celtics. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure what they can do. There's not much they can do besides, you know, living with Derek White going five of eight, I guess. I mean, the thing with Draymond is they run Draymond in a very similar role to what Boston do with Rob Williams, where it's that free safety, that rover, you know, he, they'll put him down on the corner and then ask him to help off and protect the rim and use his IQ to make impact plays. So if Boston are forcing Draymond to close out and commit without being able to offer some secondary help defense, then the Celtics are yeah. winning that, that, yeah. that personal battle anyway, because you're forcing Draymond into a role that is outside of what the ideal Warriors defense look, look, looks like. And so for me, that's a victory in itself. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I just, I wonder if, I guess that's a, that's a big question, I guess, is do you think they, Adam, do you think the Warriors will adjust that kind of and have Draymond close out because, on Al? Because I don't know if they can leave Al open for six, seven, eight, three attempts again. I mean, he was open on a good five or six of those, like really open. Yeah, I think they're going to need to, or they're going to need their rotations to be sharper. I also wouldn't be shocked if you see them go a bit deeper into that bench, you know, just for some size. So bringing Kuminga, maybe Moody, just add some size for short spurts, just to try and match up with Boston a little bit more when Boston goes big. The thing is, those guys are inexperienced and they're nowhere near as physical as what Boston are. And I think that's what gives the Celtics the edge at the minute. If they need to, they can go bully ball and just dominate their way to the room. Um, yeah, I think the I think the Warriors also miss GP right now. Bad, like about, we talked about, about it. Yeah. yeah, big time. And I'm surprised they didn't throw in um, is Toscano Anderson healthy? Because if he is, that like he's a mayhem maker. Right. I like JTA, man. Yeah, I was a little I was surprised as well, man. Um, we haven't played much this season, but in terms of like, hey, your defense is just getting exploited. We need somebody to come in there and start like mucking things up. He he's gonna right, right. do that. He's gonna come in there and just play, you know, play hard, physical basketball, one hundred percent speed. He's their version of like raw Marcus Smart with Aaron Neesmith mentality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Neesmith, you know, Pat was crying. The only player to not play in game one. Was Aaron I was Neesmith. so upset. I was Pat, so you know, upset, that, man. That one Pat. minute, man. <laughs> Oh, man, I just don't understand why Aaron Neesmith couldn't even see the floor for one minute. Um, but uh, outside of the Aaron Neesmith talk, man, uh, um, <laughs> I don't even want to get sad about it today. Well, right, he's not 1-0. the topic of conversation for the No, party. man, he's definitely not the topic of conversation. I still trust it. I think another offseason. He's the youngest guy on the roster. Um, an offseason for him is going to be great. And he's gonna have a good off season and a great time for him to develop. You hit me with last year, all right? One more. Dude, he either takes a year free jump or they cut ties with him. I don't see any other option. Um, uh, I, I, you know, him being the youngest on the roster, you know, there's still a path. You know, we saw Grant Williams. You know, there was a lot of times where people wanted to cut ties with him, and that's also another person I wanted to talk on to was this isn't a great series for Grant Williams, and he's been such a good key in the other previous three series. Um, it's just interesting, but the way that the Warriors are are ran and how small they like to go, I just don't see Grant Williams being the better play here. Looking, I um, touched on this last episode, but Peyton Pritchard is is gonna be the guy to get the minutes, and I think Eme found something in that fourth quarter when he went small. Uh, it took a minute for him to get to that that area, and and now I'm just thinking like, wow, like 
I'm feeling a lot better even moving forward because I think that we found a way to match the size. Because even though Peyton Pritchard was used to getting bullied sometimes in other series, Steph Curry's not the type of player to bully his opponent like that. Um, he's the type of person who wants to run and get moving, and Pritchard has the speed to kind of get under him and, and really take away some of that space. I'm not saying he's going to lock down Steph or anything like that. Steph is, you know, a top player in the league and he's phenomenal and he's going to get his at the end of the day. But um, Peyton Pritchard definitely uh, is a guy who is going to have a big role throughout this series. Yeah, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking for Grant to step up a little bit here coming in the series, but uh, I'm with you, man. This is definitely a more playable series for Pritchard. You know, I think we saw that down the stretch in the fourth quarter. And also, I just want to give Pritchard props because. I was certainly pretty hard on him defense-wise during the season, and he has—he is a different defensive player than he was in the past. You know, he really slides his feet, you know, gets in a good stance, you know, stays in front of guys pretty well, just harasses them, he's annoying. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's just his size that kills him on defense. So, you know, Pritchard does deserve his props there, you know, for D'ing up. Um, I do kind of have a specific question for you, Adam, after you just touch on Grant, but it's just about uh, his free agency and, you know, what do you think his contract range is worth? I know that's more off-season talk, but it's just an interesting thought I've been having. Pay that man whatever the hell he wants. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> 480. Oh, no, dude. I'd be comfortable with anything up to the 20 mil mark, to be honest. Oh, see, we landed at 15 to 18 when we talked about yeah, it. Yeah, like that around that. I think 20 mil's the overpay, but I think that at the same time, the last thing you want to do is lose him. Now he's starting to like develop, right? So that 15 to 18 is ideal, but I think I'd personally 20 million, I'd be like, dude, that's steep, but yeah. I wouldn't be too mad with it either. Yeah, I'm right. Yeah, it does. It, it does come off as like pretty steep, but people got to remember the cap is going up. It's been going up. The TV deal is going to make a jump. So 20 mil of now is not 20 mil of five years ago, but I am with you. It's a tad steep, but I think Grant has a lot of room to grow as a player still, and I trust his development you know, as a player. So I think, you know, there's still room to grow for him. So you're not only paying who he is now, but you're paying, you know, the player that he, I believe he can turn into. Yeah. And then I think like in this series, like if you want Grant to be effective, you, I think that he's going to get run off the three point line a bunch because that's just the way that the Warriors play. Um, you know, they want to force you into taking those frees and Grant's the type that will attack that close out on the dribble. But I think that if you can find ways of maybe running some wedge offense to get Grant some post touches, I think he can eat down there. If if he isn't guarded by Draymond, if he can get switched on to somebody like Wiggins, I think Grant can eat down on the post. I think his his dribble handoff game's really good, so you could use him more of as a facilitator on the perimeter. And then I think his defense works, especially if he's being switched on to a guy like Looney, who's undersized himself. Do you know what I mean? So there's ways that you can you can scheme Grant Williams into this series, but I agree. This is more for Peyton Pritchard. I said that before um, on a round table I did the other day. Like Peyton Pritchard was the next factor coming in. And do you know what makes me happy, man? He has in his second year he ha- um, and in Grant's third, they both have a chance of winning a chip, and, but more importantly, being like integral pieces to the bench unit for that chip. Like that does so much for your stock. But if Grant Williams, if the Celtics win, and Grant Williams is now NBA champion. Grant Williams, you best believe it's going to be around that twenty million mark. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yes. I think we talked about that game seven, Adam, against Milwaukee. Like, 
after that contract his uh, let's just say to quote the wire the price of the brick was going up all right you know um his contract got a lot a lot steeper after that game seven i believe yeah grant sky four williams was the name i gave him after that (laughs) that game you you didn't like you didn't like you didn't like batman (laughs) yeah i mean i like batman but like i'm gonna be quite honest i've never seen grant williams and batman in the same room (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I oh, cannot man. confirm nor deny that Grant Williams is Batman. <laughs> all I know is that he did give the Joker a hard time one night. So listen, that's all the evidence I need, pretty much, to know that uh, you know it could be Grant Bruce Wayne Williams. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Detective Gordon gave Joker a hard time oh, at least that, once that's on a his great own. Point. That's a great point, Adam. I didn't necessarily think about that. <laughs> Detective Gordon no. Williams. Okay. <laughs> We're definitely getting uh, getting off here. Um, uh, another thing that here we should we touch on uh, in game one, I think we we already touched on Ime, but uh, something that I feel kind of went under the radar, uh, especially to the casuals, is his ability to utilize all those extra timeouts during the run. How how were you um, taken? during it live when he was taking those timeouts? Obviously, you see the end result, so we're praising Ime for getting those timeouts, but I, I thought even in the moment, I was like, man, what a great way to call timeout, get your offense set in the half court, get a good look, hit a bucket, get a stop, grab a rebound, call another timeout, and do the same thing, get another bucket, man. I, I just thought that was the ultimate big brain play by Ime. Yeah, so it's just, it's game management, right? It's understanding where you are at the moment, how many timeouts you have left, how you can manipulate the flow of the game by using timeouts and when you use them. Uh, game management is something you learn. I don't think it's something you can get taught. I don't think it's something that you kind of come into being a coach knowing. And that's just like, yo, we were in this spot. Let me call a timeout. Let me get a play. Like, you know, let me design a play. We'll come out in the half court. We'll attack it. Oh, boom. Now we've got enough timeouts to do it again. So, like, yeah, it's definitely a big brain play. I'm going to be honest. I scrub through every timeout. Once it's called, I don't even care how long's left on the clock. I barely check it. I'm just like, fast forward to the next bit where there's play but what you do notice is you notice rhythm right so i uh, how can i put this like if a, if the offensive team if the opposing team's on a on a run and then you've called a timeout maybe two how's their rhythm look now because one of the biggest points of a timeout is to start breaking that rhythm or to create rhythm and i think that udoka's got very good at using those timeouts to generate rhythm for his team, to put them in a position, get some easy offense going, couple of stops, couple of buckets. And then you go back to free-flowing basketball, but now the momentum's behind you, you're in rhythm, your shots are falling a bit more. So definitely a big brain play, but it's not something that I'm going to be giving him credit for until he's consistently doing it all year through. One game's cool, but damn, dude, I can write, you know, I can write the best article in the world once. It doesn't mean I could do it consistently and i shouldn't get praised until i can so that, that's, that's kind a of fair my point answer. yeah that's a fair point I am, maybe i'm just more taken back in the moment it was a, a bold choice to do and it, it was in the, the biggest stage yeah yeah i mean did you play Peyton pritchard for eight minutes in the finals in the fourth quarter he made a lot of bold choices and i think that's where the praise should go more than anywhere else he's like having that confidence in himself in his own ability and having confidence in the team because that just like when you've got confidence in them, it instills confidence in them, like self-belief and in each other. 
Go ahead, Lucas. I know that you're probably inching to, to jump in here. Oh, I just, I mean, I was just going to ask, you know, so Adam, um, before the series, we kind of talked about how drop coverage was not going to be the ideal defense to play against Steph Curry and how I was not really expecting to see too much drop coverage. Lo and behold, you know, first seven or so minutes of the game, somewhere around there, uh, Celtics in drop coverage. Steph Curry hits six threes, goes for 21 points in the first quarter. Um, and Pat and I were discussing after game one, do you think that was like some Jedi mind trick from Ime? Because I'm not going to – you know, Ime obviously knows more than I do, right? So if he was doing job coverage, I assume there was some reasoning behind it. And, you know, I wonder if it was some Jedi mind trick or you think maybe the bigs were supposed to just step up a little bit more than they were, contest the shot better. Um, I'm just wondering, what, what, what do you think about that when you were seeing that drop coverage in that first quarter when Steph Curry was going berserk? So part of me was like, dude, are they dropping because they know that they're susceptible on the glass? So right. they're like, well, Steph isn't going to start hot, so we need to kind of build some momentum rebounding and limiting offensive boards and then i kind of thought like nah dude this is just a mistake right like you don't drop on steph you hard hedge you take away the space you don't let him get into a to his shooting pockets uh i think it was definitely some part of it would have probably been to make sure you've got an extra body around the rim so if steph misses you're not giving up second chance points part of it was probably to deal with cutters you know andrew wiggins is definitely the guy that will come and just yam it down off the rim if it isn't going in. Uh, Clay Thompson's another guy that might come and try and catch it. Uh, so part of it was probably to limit cutters, and then the other part of it was just stupidity. Yeah, that that drop coverage, man. I, I thought, um, you know, having Steph Curry, you're just giving the greatest shooter in the world like warm up shots. So they started and... like I can see someone said <laughs> they uh, they went to drop in the fourth. What they did. Earlier, though, was they started, it was still a drop, but it was shallow. So they were playing up to touch on the screen, right? So right, that's where right. the big man, the defensive big man, has can touch the screener. So he's at arm's length. And you're still technically in a drop at that point because you're behind the screen. But you, you're close enough that you can still contest. You're close enough that you can still switch. And then right. they started throwing in hedges. Now, Rob Williams was getting cooked when he was hedging onto Steph. Steph was just up faking and going. They switch Al Horford into those actions. And all of a sudden, Steph has no space whatsoever. They did alter that. Um, they started playing up to touch a little bit more in the second. And that's why Steph's shooting numbers from the second all the way through were far lower because he constantly ran into a big body that was in like a quasi drop, but was still hedging when he needed to. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think that's an important point to notice that they didn't go completely away from the drop till later in the game, but the style of drop coverage definitely changed. I'm not going to lie. I was, I was like on pins and needles kind of watching Steph Curry go up in that first quarter. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, there's no way he can go. You know, if it's a regular player, I'm going to say, there's no way he goes 12 with 16 from three, but it's uh it's the best shooter of all time. So there definitely was a chance. So I'm glad they you know kind of adjusted their defense and went forward. But that was definitely interesting. I was more expecting hard hedges, and uh, I could just tell you I was straight up not expecting you know deep drop coverage at all. Um, I I just want to know from both of you guys is uh with with Draymond's comments after this game, you know he kind of just like shrugged off, was like ah Derek White, Al Horford. You know, when when guys are shooting like that from deep, you know, you know, he he kind of almost seemed like it, it was like, oh, 
we, it's just they just won the game by luck in a sense. It, it kind of felt like it was really brushed off the Celtics in general for succeeding. Um, do you think the Warriors in this after this game one they look back at it and go like we don't have to really change much because the Celtics aren't going to shoot like that in the fourth quarter every time? Or do you think that Draymond's comments were more of a smokescreen and the, the Warriors really have a lot of adjusting to do? No, I just want to shout out Draymond, dude. Listen. Shout out for the extra motivation, though, as well. I'm shouting him out because, Pat, you know, when we lose a game, you know, it's a little tougher to podcast. We're not even playing in the game. We're watching the game. This guy's still going live podcasting after he loses an NBA Finals game. It's pretty shameless, but I have to respect the grind to some degree. But, Adam, you take it away, man. Man, I fucking love Draymond Green. I'm not even going to lie. He's, in my opinion, he's the most relatable personality in terms of this dude's just a genuine guy that's going to talk his ish whenever he wants to. Uh, yeah, it's fair. You know, saying, oh, you know, Derek White, Al Horford, these guys beat us. He was kind of insinuating, like, if that's who it's going to take to beat us, then we're going to be okay. Cool. Keep that same energy. But remember, Tatum went three for 17. That's not going to happen again. So you might not have another Derek White night or another Al Horford night like game one, but you're certainly not getting a Jason Tatum night like game one. So those scoring numbers balance out because what they gave you extra is just what Tatum was missing, you know? So, yeah, okay, you don't have to worry about those two guys, but when Tatum goes God mode, which I think he will at some point, he's just going to Super Saiyan Ultra Instinct somebody. Like um, love the references. I love that reference as well. But you know, like that's my mentality. Like, okay, Horford probably scored two or three threes more than he would in a regular game. Derek White probably dropped another three. Well, you're gonna get probably three or four of them from Tatum, and then Pritchard might score a couple of extra. That's the whole. That's the way the game works. That's why you have a rotation. So I understand what he's saying, but I just think that that was quite short-sighted. Felt to me very much like it was like the Warriors are like oh, well, we gave the young guns one, don't worry, we can get it back. And well, if you come into game two with that mentality, you're going to get slapped around and be going back to Boston two games down. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think that he brushed that off a little too easy in a sense. Uh, I think that we talk about Jason Tatum and, and we want to go in on him now. At three of 17, that's probably going to be his worst shooting night um, throughout this finals. Um I would put money down that, that that would be his worst, you know, shooting from the field. Um, but his passing, man, uh, we, we talked about it, how we wanted to see some development prior to the season starting. His next leap had to be playmaking. And I'm just happy because us, you know, watching so many Celtics games this year, we saw the development, uh, especially as it went into the second half of the season. It, it really became way more clear of how much uh, a better decision maker he has and how he's controlled double teams and just finding those guys. And in this game, you know, we get, we finally get to see on stage every casual fan who just wants to watch the championship games and the sport and everything like that. And they're now getting to see the display of Jason Tatum's passing ability. I'm not saying he's Luka at the end of the day. He's not Magic Johnson. But the type of passer he was last year compared to this year is astronomically different and in a way, way better ways than, than we can ever imagine. And I think his development has been so crucial and I think his impact throughout this series is he's going to start getting going offensively with his shot. 
and I'm still expecting him to to be able to pick apart the defense with his passes. Uh, it would not shock me if Jason Tatum, you know, finishes this NBA Finals averaging anywhere from uh, you know six to seven assists per game. Yeah, you know, seven assists is that number where the Celtics' record is just absolutely phenomenal when Tatum hits the seven assist or more mark. And Pat, while I'm not going to disagree that Tatum definitely did make a leap, I also think the situation around Tatum accentuated his playmaking more so this year than it had in the past. Because I think we've seen, you know, albeit inconsistent, but we'd seen some of these playmaking flashes, you know, this playmaking ability, you know, in the previous seasons. But now it is by far, you know, the best situation for Tatum's playmaking to result in actual assists as opposed to just passes that resulted in no basket. But no doubt he's made a leap. You know, he's a much better decision maker, I think, now. Um and it's just been really great to see. And like you said, you know, maybe he's not Luca creating for others, but 13 assists, career high, 13 assists in a game where he shot terribly in the NBA Finals, man. He was still able to get his guys shots, you know, and not shoot his team out of the game. So, listen, I'm just I – th- I thank God every day I got to watch Jason Tatum play on my favorite basketball team, man. Yeah, Adam, how, how are you feeling about Jason Tatum and his playmaking uh, extension? Yeah, I mean – um. For me, ten of, okay. So ten of his assists came to one to the guy that was one pass away. So someone called me out and it's like, well, if you make an assist, isn't everybody one pass away? Um, yeah, okay, fair enough. But what I mean by one pass away is the closest player to him. Ten of his assists came to the guy closest to him. To me, that says that he's just reading the game more. He's manipulating things, and I think the biggest jump has been the speed at which he gets off the ball. Right, so he'll see. He'll see an opening and just pass it straight away. He's not trying to over-manipulate a defense. Soon as he recognizes there's um, a passing lane and it's a good shooting opportunity, he gets off the rock. And for a guy that the ball was sticking in his hands for the majority of last last season's, um, well, for the majority of last season, uh, to see him so willingly giving up the ball and then relocating or going into um, a pin down or whatever. I think that's been that's been the biggest leap, right? I mean, we can talk about processing speed and how he's perceiving actions way quicker than what he used to, which is true. We can talk about the way he's manipulating guys with um with body feints and eye feints, but for me, it's just the the speed and willingness of which he gets the ball out of his hands. That's been the biggest leap for me. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 another point to that, like you know. 10 assists to the closest guy to him. It just means also when he grabs that ball and he's making a quick decision while putting the ball on the ground and drawing that defender, it's going to be the guy who's probably closest to him. And so for him to be so willing to just be like, I'm going to kick it out instead of continue trying to go through this drive and force something, he is making those quick instinct passes. And and that's just part of the game that we needed him to do because in, before, prior, especially more Brad Stevens' offense, he got such in that ISO heavy mindset. Sometimes it was like, I have to go and, and get a bucket. And now it's more so of like, I'm trusting that guy, even if he's right there, boom, quick. And even if he's not the one who ends up getting the shot and making the bucket, he now has an opportunity to scramble that defense, whether it's him putting down the rock and then swinging it to the better shooter again. So his ability to react so quickly now is just a rippling effect on everyone on the court. And I'm sure if we, we brought up even like hockey assist, I don't have a number, but at basketball, I'm sure Tatum probably had a way more as well because there was moments even in that fourth quarter where I thought he made the correct pass and it got swung again really quickly and the Celtics were just able to capitalize. So the thing is as well, like 
Golden State are a team that stunt a lot on defense. They'll just stunt at you, and they're usually quite deep stunts, or you can call them digs, you know, deep digs. And that's designed to pressure you to pick up your dribble. Now, Tatum last year would have ISOed on those on those digs and then waited for the guy to recover back to his man and then tried to find a, a lane to drive or to shoot, right? Now, he's punishing you. As soon as you dig on him, as you said, the guy closest to him is open all of a sudden, and he's making it so that you can't pressure his dribble because if you do, he's going to hit the pass and then you're going to be in shit street. So now all of a sudden, it's becoming incredibly difficult to figure out how do you stop Jason Tatum from getting what he wants because if you pressure the ball, he's going to pass it. It's most likely going to be an assist. If you don't pressure the ball, he's going to sidestep you, uh, either drive the lane and finish or drain a jumper in your face. It's He's just becoming one of those guys now where you're coming into a, into a game like, okay, we need to contain him because we're not going to be able to stop him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then we got a, a guy who really took it kind of home for the Celtics, really started that fourth quarter off hot. Jalen Brown, um, the the Warriors, I think their biggest adjustment is they need to find a way to slow Jalen Brown down because if they're going to play these guards out there on them and the, these small guys, even Klay Thompson is not as good of a defender as we once saw him before his injury. And to be fair, that injury is very hard to come back from, so it's very understandable why he's not the, the capable defender he once was. But Jalen Brown has been able to get to his spots, whether it's in the mid-range or just shooting over these small guards. Uh, Warriors are might need to like look to maybe even throw in Wiggins at him and Draymond and Tatum or something like that. It, it's going to cause a lot of issues because now they're going to have to utilize another one of their really strong defenders to try to slow him down while also going to be sacrificing something else. Uh, it, I just don't know what the Warriors are going to be planning. So I'm very intrigued on how they're going to do that because – Jalen Brown has been phenomenal um, opposing his will when he has smaller guys on him. As long as he doesn't take more than like three dribbles, it seems like, before he tries to do something, he, he's best when he catches that ball in some action, whether he has some type of momentum or he's just kind of a catch-and-shoot sometimes or he only has to do one dribble to get to his spot. Um, how do you feel uh, Jalen Brown has been able to really pick apart this Warriors defense? And do you think that there is a counter to really slow him down? Or is this just a really good series for Jalen Brown and we're expecting him to kind of play like this? I mean, I've, I know I've heard Adam talk about Jalen being a play finisher. I believe that's the, you know, the terminology you use. So, Adam, I'll let you take this away, man. Yeah, I mean, you, I was literally about to say that. <laughs> um, I appreciate you listening into the podcast. We, we, we support you. We support course, you, Adam. Yeah, I appreciate that a bunch. Um, yeah, so for me, that's exactly what it is. I think Jalen uh, Brown's one of the most elite play finishers in the NBA right now. And what I mean by that is, you know, putting him off ball more, asking him to score off the rip so you catch the ball as... Patrick said maximum of three dribbles on the way down and you're doing it at full speed or it's a catch and shoot opportunity. And I think that that's when you get Brown in his best rhythm uh, early in the game. I, I mean, I like to call him when, when you're asking him to play make the nickname I have for him is Butterfingers Brown because he just cannot hold the rock. Um, this series, as I said earlier, there's just nobody that on the Warriors roster outside of Looney that can protect the rim. And there's nobody that can protect the driving lanes. They just don't have the length and strength. So having somebody like Brown that's super explosive, that 
is elite at finishing on the move, finishing off the catch. This series just is a great opportunity for him. Now, when you look at the box score and you see those five assists, that's cool. But those five assists didn't come until the fourth quarter. You know what I mean? He had no assists coming into that fourth. That's where that box and one came on him as well. Yeah. And like, you know, them, I mean, Warriors might even try a triangle and two just to limit him and Tatum. And I'd be, I love triangle and two, so I want to see. Um, but yes, I think that, you know, Jalen Brown being an elite play finisher really bodes well in this series because that's kind of the role that Clay Thompson's played uh, alongside Steph, right? Throughout his prime, Clay was the play finisher to Steph's playmaker and arrowhead of the offense type of thing. So Brown's just really settled into this Robin role. You know, if we want to have Tatum as Batman, then you can have Brown as Robin, or you could have, uh, you know, maybe his Vegeta to Tatum's Goku, however you want to look at it. Huh? No, yes, sir. I just love the Dragon Ball reference. That's all. I just love it. Big Dragon Ball guy, man. I'm a big Dragon Ball guy. Um, so, yeah, it's just that for me, and it's been interchangeable, right? Like, Tatum's struggling to let Brown, but Tatum's now setting guys up. Well, who's the best guy to set up? It's going to be Brown, whether that's via a hockey assist, whether it's via a, a direct assist. And having somebody like Brown that's really improved his scoring this year, I think he's, like, you know, at the start of the year, dude was a mid-range assassin. Um, then he kind of pulled it out to the three-point line. I think I haven't looked at his three-point numbers, um, like catch-and-shoot numbers for the playoffs. I'm going to wait for them to be done. But I think he's going to be one of the better catch-and-shoot three-point guys in the playoffs as well. Um, so that's it for me, yeah, just being an elite play finisher, bullying your way to the rim, exploding. I think they will try, if, Pay- if Gary Payton Jr. comes back, or Gary Payton II comes back, um, I think they'll put him on Jalen because that limits Jalen's ability to use his athleticism because you're going against a guy that's probably one foot four inches tall that can jump about 200 miles in the air. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point about the Gary Payton as well. I think uh, if the that's why it's so huge for the the Warriors not to have him, and it makes it so difficult. And and watching Jordan Poole try to uh, get uh, in the way of Jalen Brown sometimes was it was more like Matador type defense where it's like, all right, he's just a bull. I'm I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go right by me, and he's just gonna get to the rim and he's gonna get a dunk. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh... I think I touched on this before the series was that, you know, I know Clay's a good defender and was definitely a better defender in his past. But, see, I like that matchup for the Celtics because, you know, like you said, Jalen gets going downhill, and he's a mid-range assassin, to use your words, man. And he can hit that pull-up. He can stop on a dime and hit that pull-up. It feels pretty – it feels almost automatic, honestly, if Jalen is open. And uh, Clay just cannot keep up with him. He cannot stop on a dime like that. So I think that Gary Payton II, you know, that's a big thing for the Celtics. Say, well, you know – Throw a wrench in the Celtics' offense for sure. We got to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Did you have a, something else to touch on that, Adam? I know you're about to talk. Oh no, I'm just gonna say that I think that um, I can't even remember what the hell I was gonna say now. It was um, <laughs> something to do with what Lucas said, and I was just agreeing with him. Um, sorry. I'll mute my phone. <laughs> no, you, no, you're good. You're good. Um, and. So we're, we're kind of seeing that the Celtics team came in here um, on the road, no experience ever in in the NBA Finals going against one of the most experienced teams. Uh, it was kind of shocking to see them steal game one. Uh, game two is also going to be on the road. The Celtics team has been really good playing on the road throughout these playoffs. They, they just get wins whenever they need them. Um, and it was kind of like a, a shocker because I, Lucas and I both had – 
the Warriors actually winning game one, and we thought maybe the Celtics could bounce back even the series and go back to Boston. Uh, and, and with how relaxed the Warriors were, there's a good chance that the Celtics team has an opportunity now to put their foot on the neck of the Warriors. What are some things that we, we want to see and key in on to, to see the Celtics take advantage? We do know, we do know that Jason Tatum is going to be better in game two. And I think the Warriors know that as well. Uh, but what are some keys that we need to do here to, to get that 2-0 lead going into back to Boston for game three? I mean, the first one is continue that same level of defense on Steph, right? Make sure that when you hedge, you hedge high, you take away the space instantly as he comes off that screen so he can't get into a shooting pocket. Um, pressure him to get the ball out of his hands or force him into having to fight through contacts. Wear him down. And I think that's what we saw the Celtics do a lot of against all of the Warriors. They were a little bit more physical. There was a lot of bumps when guys were coming over screens, when they were getting into the lane. And they were just taking a physical toll on the Warriors. And you need to do that from the get-go because this is a team that will push the pace consistently. So... You know, like body shots in, in in a boxing match, right? If you keep hitting the body, eventually those dudes are going to slow down. And I think that's going to be an integral piece. I think that running some more, um, like, screening sets to keep creating mismatches. Andrew Wiggins is awful as a screen navigator. He's a really good point of attack defender, but the dude just cannot navigate screens. Um so throwing more screening sets at him, making him have to fight over creating shoot, shooting pockets, driving lanes for guys, I think that's going to be imperative. And then just more of the same, dude, like control the glass. I think that we didn't really see Golden State punish Boston too much on the glass, but they're elite at corner crashing. I think they're one of the best corner crashing teams there is because they don't have the size, right? So they have to crash in from the corners to sneak in behind guys to get the ball. And Miami were killing Boston with those corner crashes. So I think uh, figuring out a way to keep the glass contained is going to be huge as well, especially for someone like Looney that's just took a huge leap as a rebounder this year. Those would personally be my three keys. That that third quarter where Looney just kind of went nuts with the offensive rebounds, man, that was uh, that was just insane. We we got to find a way also, I think, to tame the Warriors because the Warriors in the third quarter just are just crazy good, and that's something that they've just been really good at, at attacking. And there was no difference in the NBA Finals, man. They, they made us pay. And Looney was, I think, the engine of that Warriors run in the third quarter. I thought he was phenomenal for them. And, and getting them those second opportunities, he may touched on it as well. Like, we just got to limit the offensive rebounds. Uh, I thought we did really good, though, at protecting the basketball. Turnovers-wise, uh, was, wasn't like we had a, a great game with turnovers. I think we ended up finishing with 14. But... Uh, still able to to keep them under some type of wraps against a guy, so it was uh, very pleasant to see. I think as long as we continue those those turnovers down, um, take care of the offensive rebounds, and and find a way to get Jason Tatum going more offensively. Uh, he did get a lot of good looks, just not hitting the shot. But we need we need him to start knocking down a couple jumpers and and allowing uh, him to kind of get going because if if he has that type of takeoverness, uh, he can go on stretches for a couple minutes and really give us a big lead. Uh, what about you, Lucas? I mean, I think we got pretty uh, pretty similar keys to the game, man. I went over it yesterday, but, you know, limit them in the third quarter, keep your turnovers down, keep them off the glass, um, and, you know, don't let the Warriors – you got to stop runs. You know, when the Warriors score six, eight, ten points in a row, you cannot let that get – I mean, really, ideally, you don't want even to get up to ten, even getting uh, – you know, it's a double-digit run is bad enough, but you've got to make sure you're running good offense when the Warriors, you know, go on these inevitable little runs that they always have. Um, 
but I kind of I have a little bit of a little bit of trivia here. Nothing too crazy, okay, for you guys. You know, Adam, we do trivia a lot of the time on the show here. This is a little bit unorthodox trivia here. Um, Pat and Adam, can you guess the lowest cost of the cheapest ticket for Game Three hey. of the NBA Finals? Game three at Boston. Game three in Boston, yes. $864. Patrick, do you have a guess? <laughs> Man, I feel like Adam has looked it up because he may have also like looked at trips, possibly, you know, a chance to see this team in the NBA. I'll Palace. be I'll be honest, that was a good guess right there from Adam. Pretty good uh, guess. I, I'm gonna go with nine hundred and twelve dollars. Oh, you should have went lower because the cheapest ticket is uh, a, a measly $750 per ticket for a balcony level seat. So Adam Something light, to... right? Something light, you know? Not, not just kidding. I mean, I'm oh, that's... telling you this, dude. There is no fucking way. I'm paying... Sorry, I don't know if we can curse on this show. You're, you're good. There is, there is no way on God's green earth, I don't care if it's game seven, well, maybe game seven, but oh, he's, yeah, I am not paying close to $1,000 so I can watch GTA One on the PS One, you know, from like just little ducks running around. You, you got really no right. chance, bro. <laughs> no, listen, uh, you know, I was obviously joking about the measly. Listen, seven hundred fifty dollars is a lot of money, and you know, no, that's not necessarily something let, I would do. I, I like my record straight here. Y'all earn more money than us. Like your your minimum wage is way higher. It's almost double. Um, I get your cost of living's higher, but like the, the opportunity for you guys to stack paper compared to in England is just wildly like disproportionate. So seven hundred and fifty dollars to me is like, dude, that's that. I live in a I live in a semi-detached three-bedroom house with like loads of like land, and I pay nine hundred dollars a month. So it's almost a month's worth of rent just to go and watch GTA live. No, thank you, dude. <laughs> It doesn't even cost the to traveling cost. And oh yeah, then you're talking what? It's uh, to fly. It's gonna cost me about five hundred dollars. You're probably looking at about two and a half months of rent just to get there, stay there, eat, and check the game out. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong, it's tax deductible because it's my job, but that's not the point, dude. Like, if I go, <laughs> I want, I actually want to see the action. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you might be able to get right, media so access. A, no, a... you do not have credentials. I, I probably could, but I'm doubting I'd be capable of doing it for a finals game. Yeah. Like regular season, I, I, I'm quite confident that I'd be fine. But a finals game, I feel like unless you're like already established in that media circle, then there's no chance. Yeah, we All also right, so have a statement what, in the chat. Or did you want to go real quick? No, I just got another one. Here we go. What do you think the cheapest non-balcony ticket is? So that's the, the bowl level. You know, obviously not courtside or nothing, but the, the cheapest. Fifteen hundred. Uh, Oh, another good I'm, guess. Patrick, you got a guess? I'm going to go with 1264. Adam, you said 1800? No, I said 15. I was uh, I said 15. Oh. No, it's $1951. Oh. What the hell, dude? Holy. Oh. Listen, listen, I like my living room couch just fine, all right? Listen, as much as I love basketball, all right? That is just an expense I currently cannot incur. Uh, Bro, but, uh, that's nearly my entire year's payment on my car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, man. It is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, going to the garden is great and all, but for almost two thousand dollars, listen, like I said, that's not an expense I I can incur right now. Uh, but Pat, you're about to go ahead before I ask that. Yeah, um, uh, we got a comment here in in the chat. Uh, it's not 
structured in, in so much of a, a question, but I, I do think it's something that we can address. Uh, Michael Lofton here uh, on Spotify Live at, thank you for coming in and, and listening in, and thank you for the wonderful comment. It says, I'm nervous about Jason's shoulder, to be honest. Haven't heard anything concrete, but he's missing short more often than I can remember. Um, you know, me and me and Lucas have talked about it. Like, yeah, injuries happen and, and they can affect people. But at the end of the day, if you're on the court, you know, it's, you got to perform, but there, there definitely can be some type of an effect. Like, uh, if there really is something, an issue going on with Jason Tatum's shoulder, uh, it's not something that's very being discussed amongst, you know, any of the media right now, or even the team per se. Uh, I do think that if, it wouldn't shock me with the with the hand. The hand thing was more nerve wracking because he said it had been going on for months. Uh, I think there's there's a possibility. You know, you end up seeing things after a series is over, and you end up seasons going. So, oh, players getting a minor procedure on this. Minor, that could end up happening totally after the series. But as as far as uh, I'm concerned, Jason Tatum looks like he's he's himself out there. I don't see anything as far as him grimacing throughout that game one it just looked like he just didn't hit his shots he was just a little off i feel like a a couple of those you just have bad nights we've seen it with him before uh not be affected by a type of injury so for me i don't i don't know if there's anything wrong with the shoulder i mean yeah i would say that also listen i totally i mean i understand the concern and i do think he has been missing short i think that's a good observation i wonder if also you know just tired legs play into that you know i know he's played a lot of minutes this season uh, regular season and the playoffs as well. So hopefully Jason can bounce back with a few days rest here and, you know, start making and not missing long or short, but uh, we'll see here. I definitely expect Jason to bounce back, but I don't know. Adam, you got any thoughts on that one? Honestly, like the shoulder issue for me, um, how can I put this? It definitely, it definitely seems like it's hindering him a little bit. Like you could see him like struggling with it towards the end of that Miami series. I'd hope that the the little bit of rest and the additional extra day off between games is going to help manage that. I think that his tight, like tired legs are also part of that falling short. But there's definitely something wrong because, like, I don't know if everybody knows this, but generally, as Michael points out, Mike, by the way, you're the man. I hope you're doing well, brother. Um, when shots are falling short, that's usually because you're not getting enough power on the shot or you're not getting enough arc on the shot. It's one of the two. Uh, it could be a mixture of both. So it, maybe his range of motion has slightly reduced, which obviously alters the release point of the shot. That could be part of it falling short, at which point he even needs to get more lift while jumping, or he needs to just abandon jumpers and go hard to the rim. You see him kind of favoring his left a bit, like favoring left-sided finishes more. He's going under the rim, or he's coming down with his left and then finishing with the right. So he can absorb contact on that left shoulder rather than on the right shoulder. So there's definitely little bits of like little pockets where you're like, dude, man, maybe there is some there. I'm hoping that it's not anything that's going to require surgery, but I also wouldn't be shocked if he had corrective surgery after the season. Yeah, just hope it's not too serious. But like I said, definitely a good observation, you know, that he's missing short and Adam, you know, summed up there, either arc or shot power. Pat, anything else on that? No, man. Um, and I, we, we are appreciating Adam here. Uh, we are taking up a lot of your time and we, we appreciate you uh, coming on. It's been like an hour. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up here just before we kind of wrap things up though. Uh, we kind of want to see if you have any predictions for game two. Are you, uh, 
do you have an idea of who you kind of leaning to to come out victorious in this game two of the NBA Finals? Okay, so game one against Golden State reminded me a lot of game one against Brooklyn. You know, you had Steph go supernova in the first as opposed to Kyrie going supernova in the fourth. You had a huge resurgence down, down the stretch and Boston won. I think that game two is going to be far closer. I by no means think, I'm not, by, con- by comparing Brooklyn and Golden State, by no means am I saying this is going to be a sweep because I'm not stupid. Um, but I do think that Boston run this one close. I think that if they're going to drop a game this series, it's going to be this one. Um, but I also have a feeling that they're going to be going back to Boston with two games in the books. So I'm going to take Boston going 2-0, two two oh, um, t- so winning t- winning on Sunday, and I'm going to take them winning the series in six. Oh, oh, getting getting Adam to, to jump on my ship for a game two victory, man. Um, well, I have a change of heart. I put it in the chat, dude. I have a change of heart, okay? I don't know if that's cowardly to change my prediction. So maybe I'll stick with it, but I do feel like uh, I feel like the Celtics have a good chance to walk away with the victory tonight. But you know, I'm not gonna alter my prediction from last night's podcast. But I, I just do have a good. I have a pretty good feeling though. It's not. I predicted like what a two point loss or something like that. But uh, I would not be surprised at all if the Celtics, you know, walked away with two wins. That would be absolutely massive, man. No, it actually would be huge. Oh, Michael is requesting to come up, so we'll let Michael come up real quick. Michael, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. It's good to see you, Lucas, as always. But AT from across the pond, he hasn't even had his fish and chips tonight. It's barely – it's like 8 o'clock. Man. Yeah, dude, no seafood for me, though. But uh, how you doing, bro? I'm good, man. I miss you, man. It's good. To, I've obviously been reading your stuff and uh, just been pumped, ex- excited for you guys and Glad you guys kept the faith uh, through January and February uh, specifically. But, Mike, I want to know if Scott Foster is, is uh, coming to the chase tomorrow because I think that will determine my pick. I don't think uh, – have the refs been announced yet? Because I have not seen the refs that are going to be for game two just yet. I have not seen anybody upset about the refs at this point. We are still waiting for that level of anger. I think yeah. the lack of physicality as well from the Warriors allows this this game to kind of free flow a little bit more. And I, I just don't see as many fouls in this series, even close to what we saw in the Bucks and the, the Heat series. Uh, you're you're going to see the Warriors – settle for a lot of shots because they're an outside shooting team and when you're an outside shooting team you just don't shoot as many free throws it just makes me nervous like he's called the extender for a reason yeah we know the nba loves extending their series to as many games as possible but uh um referee assignments are posted at 9 a.m each game day so we will be figuring out tomorrow at 9 a.m., and uh, I hope Scott Foster's name is not on that list, all right? That's all I can say about that. Um, but, no, it's funny, man. I mean, I didn't hear too much complaining about the referees after game one. Maybe it's because I don't follow a lot of Warrior fans, but I know there was a lot of complaining. You know, that last Heat series was refereed in a pretty brutal fashion, you know. There was never really any flow of the game, and it felt like the exact opposite happened game one, so... I hope we see more like refereeing that way, you know, letting the game actually play itself out. I don't know if you guys agree, but that's at least how it felt to me. Yeah, I mean, it's not as much of a physical series, so I think the refs are going to let this flow. Um, plus, 
as I said at the start of the show, like both Boston and Golden State were getting into their offensive sets, and both teams were kind of looking to stop the offense once it had flowed in, like unfolded a little bit. Whereas against Milwaukee and Miami, they were trying to stop the offense before anything could get set up, and that's what caused so many foul calls. Like, bro, that Milwaukee series, you might have well, well have been watching the NFL game because it was literally start stop. Yeah, it was absolutely ridiculous, man. I'm absolutely glad that the series is different. Like that's the, it feels like a godsend, man, to not have to play against a physical team like Milwaukee or hyper aggressive team like Miami. I mean, it just like you said, I mean, teams can just we can just get into our sets a little bit easier, and you know that's something I definitely appreciate. Thank you also, Michael, for uh, coming up here and 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 asking. Um, yeah, again, man, Adam, if you'd like to plug in, tell the people where they can find you and everything like that before we wrap everything up here and. Send us off uh, so we can get ready for that game, too. Yeah, yeah. well, first of all, thank you guys for bringing me on. Man. It's always a compliment to me whenever anybody wants to talk basketball with me. So uh, I really appreciate that. That's genuine. Uh, if anyone wants to see any more of my work, you can find me over at Celticsblog.com. That's for written work. You can search Celtics Blog on Spotify or Apple for the podcast. If you're interested in X's and O's, head over to my Instagram page. I post play breakdowns there daily. Uh, that's growing quite well, actually. I'm quite impressed, quite pleased with that. And then I'm launching YouTube this weekend, actually. So if you want to, you know, I'm almost at, I've almost got to the point where I can monetize. So if anybody here wants to share that stuff, it's all pinned onto my Twitter profile. Again, though, thank you very much for having me. No, man, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, Lucas and I definitely appreciate it a lot. 100%, Adam. I always love talking hoops with you, man. Love love talking hoops with somebody who actually knows the game in and out, you know, X's and O's lives. So What's basketball? <laughs> what is basketball? They don't what have that over basketball? there, o- o- over the pond, do they? They don't have it in England, do they? <laughs> well, there's, there's a league, but I don't know if I'd call it basketball. <laughs> is basketball another term for soccer there? No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe. Don't there is a basketball league that. here, but it's just like, dude, man, I, like you'd probably get more fun going to watch like thirteen under thirteen AAU. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. Well, appreciate you, Adam, as always, man. You can pleasure, find the show us Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SportsEthos.com. Uh, you can find Pat on Twitter at Ball and Opinions, me at Luca underscore Gainer, the show at ethos celtics uh make sure you check us out and you know looking forward to a hopeful victory in game two man go see yes sir thank you again adam um we'd love to get you back on again maybe we'll have some after finals uh podcast because you know the off season's long man and we'll, we'll definitely have a lot to check out oh i've got a list of off season targets cool. dude so just hit me up when you're ready yeah, got you, man. Got you. Again, thank you guys so much again for stopping by here at the Spotify Live app and listening in. We all appreciate you so much. Let's go Celtics in game two, baby. Peace.